0: Before we look in God's word at what it says about the house that Jesus builds, his church, how it's being fitted together and built together into a dwelling of God, an actual place where God dwells. Now, just think about that for a minute, where God lives, the place where he is worshiped and where he is served. Before we do that, I want to begin with an introductory architecture lesson. As most of you know, I'm an architect as well. So this is Architecture 101. To me, this is fun stuff. This is basic stuff in architectural design, and I I trust it'll be the same for you. We're going to look at what it takes to produce a building that functions efficiently, effectively, that it's well-designed, that it's architecturally uh, pleasing to the eye, that really is a beautiful building. And so there's an insert in your bulletin this morning on the, the colored side of the insert. So I want you to look at that, uh, that picture of the, the two buildings in color on the one side. It's on the side of the bottom of the sheet. It says, form follows function. In the late 19th century, the great Chicago architect Louis Sullivan coined the axiom. An axiom is a truth that tends to always be true, right? Form follows function. Which means, in general, the shape that a building takes should primarily relate to its intended purpose or function, what takes place in the building and around on the building. you know put simply for an example, it means that a, a building housing a swimming pool and swimmers takes a different form, it takes a different shape than a building that houses horses and farm out animals, and where grandpa does the milking, right. And so the axiom, form follows function, with that axiom, the first steel and glass skyscrapers were born in Chicago. And the building on the left is one of the groundbreaking examples of the birth of the skyscraper, it was designed by Louis Sullivan. This is a picture of the Wainwright building in St. Louis. Now today, this doesn't look like a skyscraper, Right. But it was built when three or four stories was the maximum height that could be built with brick and wood construction. You just don't go up forever with with wood construction. So when steel was introduced into the building industry, we now know that when it comes to steel and glass buildings, the sky is the limit in skyscrapers. This is the birth of the skyscraper. And part of what drove Form Follows Function with this building on the left Was the form necessary when you want a building with as many square feet in it and as many units, as it were, for office spaces or however it is used, on the smallest part of prime real estate, you build up. And so form is following function. And with the invention of the elevator in the late 19th century... The elevator was put in the central core because that's where it functions the best, and that became the core of the building. You wanted as many windows on the outside uh, for the spaces that people inhabit. The restrooms were in the center. And so you can see form follows function, and uh, that's how this building was done. And this is really a, a prime example uh, of it. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright followed Louis Sullivan. In fact, he worked with Louis Sullivan, was a protege of Louis Sullivan, who designed the building on the right side of the sheet. He took the axiom of form follows function to a completely different level. For Sullivan, the skyscraper pretty much looked like a taller version of every other building in Chicago. The ornamentation was similar. The old patterns of laying out the office spaces and the apartments, if they had apartments, was similar. The, The layout of the elevators, where they were located, and where the restrooms, and where the mechanical rooms were located, was pretty much similar. Whereas Frank Lloyd Wright pretty much broke the mold of the old forms. Wright shook off the old styles and began from scratch with every building with form follows function. And Wright also understood the concept of designing with nature. That a building should fit perfectly in its environment. That it doesn't look like a sore thumb sticking up out of, out of nowhere. And you go, wow, that's, that's kind of odd that that building w- would be here. And the building on the left is a house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, his, his most famous house. It's called Falling Water. And, and you can see why that is. You can see how it blends into the stream and the rocks and everything else there. It looks completely different from the building on the left, right? But both are considered to be two of the best buildings ever designed and ever constructed. If you would pick the top ten or top five best buildings ever in the world, other than ancient architecture, you would, you would study these two buildings. They're completely different, even though they both function well and fit into their surroundings. They are different because form follows function. The function of the buildings are completely different, so therefore they take a completely different form. Now, when Frank Lloyd Wright designed a house, and I don't think architects would want to do this today, but he would sometimes live with the family in their old house for a period of time. So if he's going to design your house, he comes in, he lives in the house. He would watch how the family function day in and day out, What were their likes? What were their dislikes? Did they have any hobbies or a love for music and the arts? What what kind of spaces worked and what didn't work for them? He, He carefully watched for furniture in the house that was never used, or rooms the family seldom went into, or existing spaces that didn't work very well for their intended purpose, how the family was to function. And then working with the family, he would talk about these things with them for their new home. And based on the various functions that take place within the house and considering how all the spaces in the rooms needed to facilitate how the house was to be used effectively for the purposes that they needed to be used to, Wright designed the house specifically for that family. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the design or the divine architect or boy, Boy, back to kindergarten with my profession (laughs) of the builder of his church, his house. He's the divine architect. And he has designed the church, his house, to function perfectly to fulfill his intended purposes. And his plan for the church, the body of Christ, is to be fulfilled fitted together, it's built together into a dwelling of God, an actual place where God dwells, where God lives, where each individual member, each one of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit of God for the common good. And the form that the building takes will facilitate its intended function and use. Now, if I was an architect sitting down with some folks and asked this question, What kind of place do you want the church to be? And of course, with the church, we're talking about the people, the body of Christ. What kind of place? But this is where we meet. So when we're together, when we're the church, in other words, how should it function? And we ask this question, why? Why do we ask this question? What kind of place do you want the church to be? Why? Because form follows function. So let's think about the functions of the church for a moment and how that will be expressed so we can start thinking about form. What kind of place do you want to, the church to be? On the vertical plane, some might say, I want the church to be a place where I can express my praise and my heartfelt worship to God. Where I can worship God in spirit and in truth. Or someone more on the horizontal plane might express I want the church to be a place of refuge. I want the church to be a safe place where, when my own walls are torn down and I am broken, I can reveal my brokenness. And where, in community, God restores my soul. I want the church to be the safest place on earth where I am loved and can love. Some might talk about the place the church they want it to be, is where there's sweet fellowship, where there's the expository preaching of God's Word, where there is effectual prayer, where there is evangelism, where where the lost are welcomed and they are found. (laughs) I want the church to be that kind of place. I want the church to be the place where there's the breaking of bread, uh, the fellowship of breaking and bread, but also the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I want the church to be the place where there's baptism. I want the church to be a place of spiritual growth and maturity. I want the church to be a place where there's diversity, holiness, and discipline, and obedience to Christ. And I want the church to be a place where I can serve God and serve others with giftedness and with gladness. Now, at that point, if I was the architect, I'd be going, wow. (laughs) How, How on earth are we going to do that. Maybe you ought to hire somebody else as your architect. (laughs) But what came to your mind? Maybe there's some things that came to your mind. What kind of place do you want the church to be and what kind of form will that take? With the building that Jesus builds, his church that is comprised of believers, walking, living, breathing, Holy Spirit indwelt and filled human beings. Form also follows function. The Lord Jesus Christ has perfectly designed and is building his church to function exactly as he has planned it to function, and he has strategically strategically and purposefully placed each one of us exactly where he wants us to be, to serve exactly where he wants us to serve. So that we will be built together to function perfectly to fulfill his intended purpose, and he has gifted and he has equipped each one of us to fulfill his perfect plan. That is the church that Jesus builds on the opposite side of the opposite side of the handbook handout handbook, you'll find an architectural design, a drawing, and, and this attempts in some small, some simple way, to show how God intends his church to function. And hopefully it's not too in simplistic of a way, but it's a representation of the, the building that Jesus builds. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ designed the church to function so that it might be the place that he wants it to be, that it might be the place that fulfills his intended purpose. So I just want to give you a brief overview this morning of God's blueprint for his church. In the upper... Uh, Left-hand corner, you can see the theme verse there. Using the building metaphor, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You're being built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And when you look over in the upper right-hand corner, and we're going to work from the top down on these this morning, you see the words, living stones. Living stones. With the arrows pointing to the stones on the building. This is where we begin. This is where you begin to find your niche, your place, your individual God-given designed place in the house that Jesus builds. So turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 4. Here, Peter describes Jesus as a living stone. A living stone. That God's church is made of living stones, and Jesus is the primary living stone. We'll go on to see that uh, he is the cornerstone. And then Peter goes on to describe believers as living stones as well. We are living stones in the building that Jesus builds. It's not a house made of wood or stone or brick or steel, but it's made of living, breathing human beings. So verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of Christ to begin with, Peter writes, And coming to him, coming to Jesus Christ, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones, are being built up as a, whole, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Each one of us as a believer is a living stone. And all of us put together where God wants each one of us individually to be, doing what he wants us individually to be doing, are being built up into a spiritual house. And it even gives, Peter even gives the the purpose for this. The overall purpose is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through through Jesus Christ. That is our primary function. Everything else falls underneath that, is is a subcategory. And one of those subcategories is spiritual gifts. So you'll notice on the drawing, below living stones is part of what the arrow points to there. You see the words service gifts. Service gifts. This refers to the spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture that can be classified, well, at least one way to classify them, because in the same way that uh, the Bible uses different analogies for the building, we're also the body of Christ, we're the bride of Christ, You can all those kind of things, uh, the spiritual gifts are classified in different ways in some of the different books as well of, of the Bible, but uh, here they're classified the word service gifts gives us a good classification of the spiritual gifts that can be classified as the way that you serve. You serve the church and you serve Christ with that particular gift. And so this begins to answer the question, where am I supposed to be in Christ's church? Where's my, me as a living stone, am I here or over there or over that? And, and what is the function of that stone? Where am I supposed to be? What is your place? What is your niche as a living stone? What is your particular role and function in the church? And it's all dependent upon your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift will determine where you are placed and how you are to serve as a living stone in the building that Jesus builds. Now, Peter breaks down the spiritual gifts into two categories. He refers to the gifts as either being speaking gifts or service gifts. Uh, we see that still in 1 Peter, but in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. First Peter chapter 4, beginning at, at verse 10. And he says, As each one has received a special gift... Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are to use our gifts. Whatever our gift is, we are to use it in serving God. And notice how Peter breaks down the gifts. He said, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And so here we see the speaking gifts. What are the speaking gifts? They're preaching, they're teaching, uh, giving encouragement, exhortation. Literally, those that we would use our ability to speak to serve others in these kind of ways. So those are, we could say, the speaking gifts. And then Peter mentions the service gifts, the serving gifts. Verse 11 continues, Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Yeah, these are the service gifts. Okay, where the service gifts? There's the gift of service, that would be one of them. There's the gift of helps, coming along somebody, alongside somebody and helping them. Somebody or just some people are just tremendously gifted at that. And these are the people you see they're they're mowing somebody's lawn, they're fixing something that needs to be fixed in their house. They're they're installing handrails <laughs> you know, to, to grab bars, you know, and so when people get older and, and need that done for somebody. These are the people just served behind the scenes and they're helping all kinds of different kinds of people. And so why does God give verse or give gifts? Peter continues in verse eleven, so that so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever. And ever. So here again we see that ultimately it's to glory glorify God, that we'd be a spiritual house offering up sacrifices to Him. And so now, as I said, the spiritual gifts can be cataloged and classified in several different ways. If you Googled it and went to the right pages, you'd still find several different ways that people classify uh, the spiritual gifts. But and each way has its benefits as we study, study God's Word. So we can determine, we can develop, and we can deploy our own gifts. But for our purposes, I find it helpful when we're talking about the building, a building analogy, to break it down into service gifts that are speaking or vocal. These upfront ministries, we would say, ministries that are typically done uh, in, in, in more of a public setting, Service gifts that are speaking or vocal, and service gifts that are quiet and behind the scenes. And so, like like helps or or mercy, giving mercy, because Peter tells us right here that every spiritual gift is a serving gift. And so we're going to start with the serving gifts and then break that down into service gifts that are that are more vocal, they're the speaking gifts, and then those those quiet gifts of people serving behind the scenes because it's all intended to serve the body of Christ for the common good all are, are serving gifts so to get you thinking about it it's the morning of handouts so there's another handout in your bulletin this morning, and at the top of one page it says support gifts and uh, that's that's the front page and and this classifies the spiritual gifts. And I'm not going to say very much about this list today because we're going to be, over the next several weeks, really understanding what each one of these gifts are as we learn what our own individual spiritual gifts are. But I want to point out that your spiritual gift, singular, every believer has a spiritual gift, singular. Every believer. So what about... You know, do, do we get more than one gift? How does that work? I, I know that I have more than one gift. You probably, you know, if you've given much biblical thought about this, you know that you're gifted in, in more than one way. So I think it's best to see that each one of us has a gift mix that is our one individual spiritual gift. You have been given a gift that is a mix of more than, than one gift, and, and I'm not saying that even this list is exhaustive. <laughs> you know, I think we find other places in Scripture. You go back to the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you find the gift of craftsmanship. God spiritually gifted these people to do this wonderful ornamentation and build these wonderful things and make these wonderful things for, for the temple and, and, and for worship, and so... So it's not an exhaustive list, so just don't think, okay, I've got to find myself in here. Well that, you know don't you know, and even when you do, take, for example, as each each gift mixes differently, someone who has the gift of teaching but also has the gift of faith. J- just imagine for a minute what what their ministry is going to look like. They're going to be exhorting people and and, and exhorting God's people to do Great things of faith for, the God to, for God to step out on faith. But his or her ministry and service will look different than someone who has the gift of teaching, but also has the gift of mercy, right? What a tremendous ministry to come alongside someone who is hurting to open up God's word appropriately, not just to throw a bunch of verses at them and say, have faith, <laughs> you know, that's what the other guy might do, you know, and that wouldn't be appropriate. Now, I'm not saying they, they would do that. But, uh, but to open up God's word, give them comfort, give them encouragement. Menace, me, uh, uh, mercy is what? It's the ministry to the miserable. To come along somebody who is miserable and be an instrument of God's mercy. Now, all, the, all those who have the gift of teaching, not all of them have the gift of mercy. And they can't do that as someone who is gifted in bestowing mercy. So if you're looking again at the sheet with the gifts listed, I just want to call your attention to the back side because there's a little parentheses down at the bottom, a little footnote. And I want you to take note of this. The note says that the potential gift mixes, just taking those on both sides of the sheet, just the gift mixes that are listed on the sheet, which is probably not all the gifts, is 5.19 times 10 to the 36 power. That is the potential gift mixes that are just listed here. That's 5.19 with 36 zeros after it. And so based on the gift mixes, there are potentially this many different spiritual gifts. Your gift is one of these, you know, by the time you add the others, add some more zeros. Since I couldn't express that on the drawing, that's why we have my simple sketch (laughs) this morning. You know, kind of, this is the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid. But uh, (laughs) that's for me, okay? (laughs) You know, because there's just, you know, God's house, God's building is so incredible. His ways are so much higher than our ways Just to diagram it, we're going, wow, Lord, I just, this just, but this is a way that I hopefully we can understand it. And so below below the living stones, you see the designation the scaffold. The scaffold. What does a scaffolding do on a building? Well, a scaffold supports the builders and the, the workers and the building until the building is completed, right? And these are designated, at least on this this drawing, as sign gifts. And we'll talk more about those later in the coming weeks. But the sign gifts are those which support the church and the work of the church until the other supports are in place. And we'll be talking about those supports in a minute. And we'll have more to say about the sign gifts in coming weeks. But below that, there are the evangelists and the pastors and teachers, Now, these are the support gifts. Notice that the arrows point to the supports in the building. What is it that supports a building? What keeps the building from falling down? These are the columns, the beams, the lintels, the floor joists, the rafters, the bearing walls. These gifted men support the rest of the living stones. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We're just going to keep flipping back and forth between Ephesians and and 1 Peter this morning. Ephesians chapter 4 at the, the 11th verse. After the Apostle Paul says that the ascended Christ in his ascension to the right hand of the Father gave gifts to men, and one of those gifts is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon the church. The gifts are also the spiritual gifts. Paul mentions the support gifts. Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give these particular gifts? And In fact, the way the structure of the language is here, he gave also these men to the church. These men themselves are gifts to the church. But why did he give them, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ? Evangelists and pastors and teachers undergird and support and hold up, as it were, all the other ministries, all the other gifts, all the rest of the living stones in their ministries. When the saints, the living stones, are equipped for service, the body of Christ, to change the metaphor, is built up. And if the saints are not equipped, then what? The building crumbles, and it falls, and it has no support. So please turn once again to Ephesians chapter 2. Go back in Ephesians to the second chapter. The second chapter of Ephesians at the, the 19th verse. In Ephesians, as we work down the chart, we see the foundational gifts. The foundational gifts. Those gifts that form the foundation of the church that Jesus builds. And as most of you know, the foundation is the most important element of a building. There must be a proper Foundation. I was talking to Joe yesterday, and I'm sorry he's ill today, but uh, he was asking, Pastor, what's your sermon going to be on next week? Because he's going to be playing the piano. And I kind of said in tongue-in-cheek, I said, well, it's going to be the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And, and Joe said, I think we ought to sing that. And I think we ought to sing it too. So I hope he gets better <laughs> next week so we can, we can sing that because such deep, wonderful theology in a children's song, the faith, the faith of children. But there must be a proper foundation. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built having been built, because the foundation's already there, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, if you look at the drawing, you'll see the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. You'll see that Jesus is the cornerstone, which is also part of the, the foundation. Jesus himself, of course, is part of the foundation. And we only have time this morning in our next few minutes to look at Christ as the cornerstone. I think we need to focus on Christ as we end this today. And then we'll take an extensive look at how the wise men built and the, the foolish men built, the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. We'll see that, that next Sunday. But now I want to see that Jesus is the cornerstone. So once again, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Go the other direction in your Bible. The second chapter of Peter's letter, the fourth verse. This is where Peter talks about the living stones. And in verse four, first of all, we saw Christ, as we read this before, and coming to him as a living stone, coming to Christ as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but his choice and precious In the sight of God. Then go to verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture, as he quotes the Old Testament, Behold, God says, I lay a stone in Zion, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Now some buildings today have cornerstones. But they are not the same thing as they were in Jesus and Peter's day, in ancient architecture. Today, a cornerstone is more of a decorative marker that indicates the date when the building was built, maybe who financed it or why it was built there and those kind of things. Sometimes they put a time capsule inside of it. That was interesting. I can't remember where the building was, but they opened a time capsule, and they were all excited. It was empty. And so they wonder if somebody ripped it off or it was just a joke to begin with. so, So we don't even take that serious in our society. But in Jesus' day, the cornerstone was the most important stone in the building. The most important stone. The cornerstone, which was the first stone laid on the foundation, established two important standards for the building. First of all, the cornerstone established the quality of the craftsmanship and the quality of the stone for every other stone in the building. Every other stone was to be compared with the cornerstone. And secondly, the architect fixed the bearings and the walls and the cross walls of the buildings in relation to the angle that the cornerstone was laid. So first of all, the cornerstone established the quality and the craftsmanship required for all the other stones in the building. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, calls this cornerstone the stone of testing. The stone of testing. In other words, every other stone is to be tested for quality by comparing it to the cornerstone. Excuse me for a second. Did you hear that gurgle? (laughs) Basically, it says to the builders and the masons, Every stone in the building must be of this quality, the quality of the cornerstone, not only in type and quality of the stone itself, but in its cutting, in its crafting, in its honing, and its fitting to precise measurements. Now, if the building were a temple or a palace, the cornerstone would be of the highest quality possible. It would be cut and honed with precise angles, finished and smooth to exacting standards, And any stone meeting that quality was rejected. If the building was to be used as a smokehouse, then lesser quality stones were used, which met the type and craftsmanship of the cornerstone. So they take a stone, this will work for for, for a smokehouse, and they would lay it down and then say, okay, this every other one. The same was true for a house or a library. The cornerstone established the quality of the rest of the stones. So what about the building that Jesus builds? Peter says that the cornerstone is a choice stone. It's a precious stone. It's a valuable stone. And the reason that it's a choice, precious cornerstone is because the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 6 again where Peter quotes Isaiah. The Lord is the one who chose and laid the cornerstone. He says... Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, lay in Israel, as it were, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The word translated choice means select. In verse 4, Paul uses the word and translates it chosen. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was chosen by God to fulfill this holy purpose. He would be the select stone, the choice stone, the valuable stone that would die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Lord said of Jesus Christ through the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Jesus is a perfect stone because he is perfect in his deity, but he's also perfect in his humanity. And in his perfect humanity, God become flesh. Jesus is the standard for all the other living stones in the building of his church. And so we as living stones are being shaped, we are being honed, we are being smoothed, into, there's parts of us cut off, parts of our lives cut off. We are being finished and polished to the exacting requirements of the cornerstone. Jesus is the standard. And secondly, the laying of the cornerstone in ancient architecture. The architect fixed the bearings of the walls and the cross walls of the building in relation to the angle of the cornerstone. So once the cornerstone was laid all the stones laid in one direction were in perfect alignment with the cornerstone. And all the stones laid in the other direction were in perfect alignment with the cornerstone. And everything was in perfect alignment. And all the stones laid on top of the foundation and stacked on top of each other were in perfect alignment with the cornerstone. And the implication of this is really cool. Because if you are in alignment with Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, if you are in alignment with Christ, you are going to be in alignment with everybody else who's in alignment with Christ. I remember Dr. Howard Hendricks saying one time, the main problem with Christianity today. And when Howard Hendricks said the main problem, you listened. And I'm trying to imitate him best I can. He said, the main problem with Christianity today is that Christians are trying to be like each other instead of trying to be like Jesus Christ. And A.W. Tozer said it this way, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord of being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one much in, in, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So one hundred worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Isn't that insightful? When we look to God, then we have perfect fellowship with everyone else who is looking to God. Imagine what that would be like. How we would function as Christ's body of living stones, to mix the metaphors again, if we all patterned our lives after Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. I thought of that great old hymn, O to be like thee, while I am pleading, pour out thy spirit, fill with thy love. Make me a temple, meet for thy dwelling, fit for life, which thou wouldst approve. O to be like thee, O to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. One of the things my architectural drawings cannot do is to express the beauty, the elegance, the absolute magnificence of the building that Jesus builds. Look around. (laughs) Look around. A building that glorifies God. A building that is the visible presence of God in our community, in our world. A building which displays the glory of God. One of the joys of being an architect is seeing the building completed when it's all done. Sometimes you go, oh man, I should have done that. But we're human, okay? But, but to see when it, it functions the way it's supposed to be functioning, and it's working the way it's supposed to be doing, and it's, it's a building that is beautiful and contains some elegance and those kind of things. Okay, look, imagine what it must be when God sees his church. He sees, sees his people doing what he has called them and blessed them to be and serving one another each one becoming more and more like the image of Jesus Christ as the building itself becomes Christ. And think how that brings God pleasure. The Lord is pleased. And what does he do? He says, enter into the joy of my master Enter."